Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm your host, Rob Hopkins. You might think of this podcast as being the milkman of human imagination, delivering every two weeks a delicious bottle of possibility to your mind's front doorstep. And every other week, delivering subscribers a special extra bottle of Ministry of Imagination podcast, a kind of bonus what-if smoothie, perhaps. We're that kind of whistling happy milkman, rather than a grumpy, sullen one that hates the early morning starts. And while we're on the subject of subscribers, did you ever think of becoming one? For just £3 a month, we deliver you podcasts and more, and you enable us to keep making these. It's a match made in heaven. Your support enables us to keep doing this, and how much richer is your life for the fact that we do do this? Do give it a thought. We'd love to sign you up to our metaphorical imagination milk round. Anyway, welcome. One of our great sheroes, Mariame Kaba, in her amazing recent new book, We Do This Till We Free Us, wrote, changing everything might sound daunting, but it also means there are many places to start, infinite possibilities to collaborate and endless imaginative interventions and experiments to create. Our discussion today very much takes place in that context. Today we're thinking big, really big, with big thinkers. While some of our episodes focus on what-if questions that are quite specific and focused, today we're thinking big, so hang on to your hats. Our question for today is, what if we redesigned the operating system of our entire civilization? To join me in tackling this question that will stretch our imaginations to the limit are two amazing guests. Atosa Soltani has been a global campaigner for tropical rainforests and indigenous rights for going on three decades. She's a founder and board president of Amazon Watch and served as the organization's first executive director for 18 years. Currently, she's the director of global strategy for Amazon's Sacred Headwaters Initiative, working in alliance with 30 indigenous nations to protect 86 million acres in the most biologically diverse ecosystem on Earth. She's the Hillary Institute 2013 Global Laureate for Climate Leadership and is producer of The Flow, a feature-length documentary currently in production on learning from nature's genius. Jeremy Lent is an author and speaker whose work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways towards a life-affirming future. His award-winning book, The Patterning Instinct, examines the ways humans have made meaning from the cosmos, from hunter-gatherer times to the present day. His upcoming book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, will be published in June this year. He's founder of the non-profit Leology Institute, dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on Earth, and he writes topical articles exploring the deeper patterns of political and cultural developments on the blog Patterns of Meaning. Wow. Welcome both. Yeah, well, thanks. What a pleasure to be with two people I just admire, uh, love the, your work so much. So thank you. It's an honor for me to be here, Rob. I've been a huge fan of your work for, for many years. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So, so I'd like to start this show, if I might, by inviting you to do an exercise that we always start with, using our patented from what if to what next time machine. So I'd like to invite you both to close your eyes 
uh, and to make yourself comfortable and to invite everybody at home uh, listening to this to do the same thing. And to imagine that with our time machine, you're traveling forwards through the next nine years, 2024, 2025, 2026. You can feel the years rushing past you like, like you can feel the wind on your face. And the 2030 that you step out into is a world where, thanks to the incredible concerted efforts over the past nine years, the world, while still not a utopia by any means, is firmly on the way to redesigning the operating system of our entire civilization. It's an utterly exhilarating time to be alive, and the last nine years have felt like living through a revolution of the imagination. The work you both put so much energy into back in 2021 paid off and bore fruit. Congratulations. And I'd like you to both invite you both to give us a sense of what that world is like. Take us for a walk around that world as you imagine it now as a post-carbon, more resilient, more beautiful, equal, fair, delightful, delicious world. What does it taste like and feel like to live in a world that is in the midst of such a deep and extraordinary change? Paint us a picture of how it would feel to live in such a world. Jeremy, maybe should we start with you? Mm, yeah. We, you know, the, the thing that I notice the most, <clears throat> just walking around, like in the city, just all different places I go to, is the trees everywhere. Like all of a sudden, this whole shift that occurred in the 20s was this realization that to really, really deal with this climate breakdown, one of the things we need to do is forget these ridiculous notions of these carbon capture technologies that didn't even exist anyway, but use the carbon capture technology that has been tried and tested by Mother Nature for hundreds of millions of years and allow the trees to reinvigorate life. And so there's this beautiful sense of growth everywhere and this wonderful feeling that suddenly the sitters, the urban areas are becoming more like living breathing areas. There's this quietness because rather than cars going everywhere, you get the sense of cycling and you actually get to hear not just the birds, but people talking and chatting and actually having fun together. So the sense of life coming back into our actual daily routines and daily rhythms. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Atosa? Well, I would say that world also has just finally made that leap that transition to an economy that is really about life. Life is at the center of all decisions. Life getting more life, you know, life flourishing and people being focused on planetary health and personal health and ecosystem health and their watershed health, all as a fractal continuum that goes from the very personal macro household level all the way to, to the watershed. And that this mantra of water is life is now at the core of the paradigm that's allowing people to make decisions about what they consume, what they produce, where they live, what they do with their life force, with their life energy, that we're really learning that political boundaries and our loyalties are not to our cities per se, they are to our watersheds. And we have, we're having this water revolution where we're seeing how we contain and slow down the flow of water and that restore watersheds 
like Jeremy said, the ancient technology of nature to actually keep life in balance, allow life to flourish, has become our all of our livelihoods. Our livelihoods are honestly about life flourishing. And I do think that this is a world where we have turned the corner. We've been through a breakdown. We've been through really dark days. And out of those dark days has come this realization that life is really sacred. And that ultimately we have a, we're coming out of a life-blind economic system to a life-affirming economic system where our daily decisions relate to these values of basically caring for, for life. We're in that economy where most of our days spend caring for each other, caring for our families, caring for the earth, caring for our food, for seeds, for forests. That is the drumbeat of the economy that is emerging in the future. And that, you know, water is the sacred element. We found a way to give currency, true currency, which is the flow of water to our landscapes, to our lives, the meaning that it deserves and the significance that it deserves that was formerly given to just dollar signs or money. People are graduating from high school with that ecological systems perspective and earth systems, they understand earth systems, they understand the hydrological cycle and that they are systems thinkers. They are thinking in terms of the intersections of things and the idea that we are birthing a future that's really about harmony, that harmony becomes this ancient wisdom that is basically guiding, being the beacon for how we restructure our future societies, uh, the beacon that says, you know, it's really harmony is this organizing principle of nature. Nature is always seeking to co-resonate in order to harmonize, in order to flourish. And that really nature's principles are about distributed abundance. And that we have been in this mindset of concentrated scarcity. So we're going from the paradigm of concentrated scarcity to distributed abundance. Finally, of course, governments have made decisions, big decisions like 100% renewable energy, 100% regenerative agriculture, protecting at least half of all the ecosystems on earth. And in the Amazon, we've been able to protect 85%, restore and protect 85% of the forest cover of the Amazon. And that in doing so, we were able to put forth this vision from the heart of the planet of an economy that's based on forest standing and rivers flowing, that that is the economy, that we, we truly redefine wealth, biodiversity flourishing, rivers uh, and clean air, and those become our true measures of wealth as nations. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely beautiful. And I will uh, give me a completely different way of thinking about the word livelihood. Thank you so much for that. So, so I'd like to start our conversation with a question that really roots us in the now. And our question is, what if we redesigned the operating system of our entire civilization? There might be a case to argue that regardless of what we do, COVID is kind of already doing that for us. I'd love to hear your thoughts as to whether COVID is making that work easier or harder. And Atoso, in, in a recent paper you, you, you sent me, you described COVID as offering us a momentary portal to reframe the dominant paradigm. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, you know, the idea that 
the entire planet over the last year. I mean, I, I experienced the last year, of course, through um, a lot of living in isolation by myself in small spaces, relating on Zoom to the entire planet, these like little windows of, of what's happening in the world and trying to make sense of it. And the idea that we were in a total freeze, we freeze frame for months. And over that last year, we completely stopped much of the way that we've been doing things. And we had to basically stop traveling, stop gathering, stop being in large events and and communities. Um, The industrial machinery shut down almost entirely at times over the last year. People were able to really make a quick shift to being focused on health and well-being, you know, that we isolated and took the huge burden of shutting down that it meant in order to be able to live and survive. And so we chose life, you know, as a species, we chose life, even if it was costing us. Or some people didn't, like Trump. But for me, this idea that, you know, basically the earth itself has given us a portal to choose life. And to turn on a dime, to quickly, we showed that in a space of a few weeks, we could restructure our priorities and restructure the way we we organize our livelihoods and our well-being. And that, you know, has been both a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's an opportunity to pause, reflect, and as I said, reorient towards a living economy. On the other hand, it's exacerbated inequality in many aspects. It's made more visible the underlying flaws of the system and the system goals. We're looking at many countries in the world, not just poor countries. There's like 80 some countries considered poorest nations, but also middle income countries, which are most of the biodiverse countries like in the Amazon, where their national debt exceeds their GDP, where they're going into further debt and are really having to face bankruptcy at many levels. And so at this moment, they have to choose. They're at a crossroads. These countries have to choose which path they will come out of this pandemic. And I think it's a huge opportunity to build back in a way that is different from the past. The fact is, for these countries to get out of their predicament of debt, they will have to mortgage the rest of the rainforests, the rest of the reefs, the rest of the biodiversity that they see as natural resources in order to basically create cash, convert those resources into cash in order to get out of debt. And the debt, just like climate change creates more violent weather, this COVID pandemic has created bigger and bigger pools of money in a concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And so we are having this system imbalance where where COVID is basically made more visible, the flaws of the system. But COVID is also giving us this opportunity to choose life and say, you know what, we actually need to be about building back a healthy planet, healthy communities, and putting health and livelihood at the center of our future decisions. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah. You know, I kind of see COVID and the whole pandemic thing really is more like a dress rehearsal for what is to come. Because, you know, when we're looking at the actual impacts of climate breakdown, we know for absolute certain that we're going to be facing 
bigger and bigger stresses, just like the ones that Atosa, you were just talking about right now, but getting bigger and bigger with the droughts and the migrations and the floods and the agricultural devastation and hunger and all these things. Honestly, people look back at COVID as being this kind of little blip in a system compared to the kind of unraveling that we're going to be seeing. You know, who's to say how many years we're going to be looking at of things getting worse before they get better. I love your 2030 exercise, Rob. In my own assessment, not that it has any more validity than anybody else's, but I see it somewhat longer time frame before we kind of hit bottom and transition out to where that kind of transformation we need. But who's to say? But I do believe that's what we're going to be looking at. And so just as a toast was saying, when we think of COVID, it's a little bit like a concentrator. You know, it's it showed the extremities of inequalities that have just gotten even worse. It also brought communities together, um, human beings in the same neighborhoods and same caring, compassionate communities, realizing they can't just rely on the state or some authority to actually do the things that are needed. And so it, so it brought out core human emotions of connectivity, of love for others, of, of care for others in this beautiful way. And both community-wise and globally, you'd have scientists around the world, like um, just creating their own wickets, you know, to come up with responses to things, bypassing old structures of copyright protection, all this kind of stuff to do that. So you see both the best in human nature and you see the worst in these structural inequities of our society at the same time. And I think we're going to see more and more extreme versions of that. So what I do believe we have to do is, to me above all, is just get the clarity of what actually becomes possible as crises hit and have that available to people so that when the crises get bigger, when they hit harder, we've got the resources as a global community to respond. You both speak of the key role that Indigenous wisdom will play in enabling such a redesign. I'd love to hear from you both what that means to you. Given the incredible diversity of Indigenous cultures around the world, their different faith systems, cultures and perspectives, what is it that we can draw together and point to as being an Indigenous wisdom, an Indigenous worldview that they all have in common? And how does it help us in this redesigning? Jeremy? You know, my understanding of indigenous wisdom is framed somewhat by the historical way in which we look at just human wisdom in general. And of course, for many, many tens of thousands of years, actually human understanding was in the form of indigenous wisdom. And that's really the core wisdom of humanity. What it tells us in my perception, and this is where we see the, the commonalities between wisdom from Australian Aboriginals or Native Americans or all around the world, is this concept of connectedness, just this realization of everything being connected. That's a beautiful phrase in the Lakota community, like all our relatives, like this recognition that not just other human beings, but all of life is part of the same connected family. And from that, you get recognition that actually 
in total contradiction to this neoliberal individuality, you get this recognition that to be a full person is about being a person in community. It's actually, it's, a, it's based on the relationships, the relationships with others around you, the relationships with the natural world. So everything is all about relationship rather than setting yourself up separate from others or from the natural world. Let me turn to you, Atosa, who's far more the expert, having spent so many years of your life embedded in exactly this world. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, you know, I, I have had the honor of being involved with the indigenous people's movements around the world, the movement for rights, land rights, self-determination, and human rights. The things that I would say is that, you know, the proof is in the fact that indigenous peoples have been good stewards to life. Of course, we were all once indigenous, but the indigenous peoples who live in relationship, in that kinship that Jeremy was talking about to their landscapes, to their living forests, to the earth, are about 4% of the world's population, and yet 82% of the world's biodiversity and over 60% of the world's remaining forests are on indigenous lands. And, you know, now I see, you know, all these studies that come out that say indigenous people's territories in the Amazon, for example, have even lower deforestation rates and incredible concentrations of biodiversity, in some cases, even better than national parks, which is where governments removed people to create a protected area. So there's this conviviality and this kinship ecology where indigenous peoples are, see, is all my relations, you know, I'm related to all of life. And that this other concept that really is about everything's alive, you know, the rock is alive, the mountain is alive, the river is alive, the river is referred to as a person. The mountain is the wise elder and the forest is alive. So seeing nature as alive invites us to think about sentient beings, nature and species and earth as living as opposed to an object which is really here to just be exploited or consumed. That worldview, that fundamental worldview that indigenous people share, that people are in reciprocity. Everything's about being in reciprocity to life. You give as you take. You try to give back more than you take. And that ultimately aspirations of indigenous peoples are often about being good ancestors. And the idea that, you know, we are making decisions today that affect the seventh generation is really a common teaching from North and South. I've also spent time in, in other countries, other parts of the world, indigenous nations, and there's a lot of um, commonality in that. But the other amazing thing about indigenous knowledge and wisdom, it's very local. It's very related to the place. It's this place-based knowledge. You know, you're not going to get an Amazonian indigenous peoples to opine on what's happening in North America because their knowledge, their entire sense of self is embedded in a landscape which they know so well. Actually, everyday person in a village in the jungle can identify three, 400 species of plants. And the elders and the shamans can identify maybe 1,000 to 1,500 species of plants. They are walking libraries. They also have many words for water and rain and weather and have a sense of the ecological balance in which they're embedded. The other concept that I'm very excited about, which actually was instilled in the Ecuadorian constitution and the last time the Ecuador rewrote the constitution was this idea of sumac causae, which is an indigenous Quechua word that refers to the idea of living in harmony, 
living in harmony with nature, living in harmony with your family, with your neighbors. It's a fractal kind of a concept. Living well is a collective definition of concept, not an individual concept. So going back to the idea that a community living a full life, a happy life, a good life is a collective concept. And the other concept that's related to that, which was adopted in the Constitution of Ecuador, is the rights of nature. Nature as a subject of rights, nature as a person, the rights of rivers, rights of mountains, rights of species to exist and perpetuate are now coming up around the world. There's exciting movement for the rights of nature. It came from indigenous worldview. So that's what I would share. Thank you. Thank you. And it's clear that we need a new operating system. That's kind of what we're talking about today. And I'd love to hear from you both how you would describe that system and what it needs to be. What is it that we're moving towards? And what are its foundational ideas, beliefs, principles, qualities? Jeremy, you you refer to it as an an interconnected worldview. Right. Uh, What does that mean? Yeah, well, I, I think basically to get to this point about the operating system, if, if you look at the way that our world works, underlying everything is this kind of foundation of everything has to be based on wealth accumulation, on wealth extraction. It's an operating system, basically, of a, a worldview that's come really from mostly European scientific revolution type times in the 17th century or so in Europe, but then it had like older roots in European thought all the way back to the ancient Greeks. But it's one that's based on separation. And in simple terms, it's basically, it it goes like, we as humans are separate from the rest of of the living earth. In fact, even ourselves are separate. We have this soul that's separate from the body, and then we're separate from earth. And humans are special, and we're essentially different from the rest of the world, which makes the world basically just a machine or a resource to exploit. And from that separation, you get this notion of exploitation. And that's where the concepts of supremacy arise, like white supremacy, where whites believed that they were actually somewhat superior to other human beings. So it was a God-given right for them to exploit them. And then there's, at a profounder level, there's a sense of human supremacy because nature is just a resource for us. We have some sort of right, even if it's not considered God-given anymore, to just exploit resources for our human benefit. So it's all about separation, exploitation, wealth affirming. And these are things that most people aren't thinking about every day, but all the decisions we make, the values our society has are based on that operating system. And the reason I love to look at this notion of the operating system is that most of the stuff that's done to try to fix the world right now is a little bit like sort of fixing bugs. If you've got an operating system that's bad, you get lots and lots of bugs and you can keep trying to fix those bugs, but then you keep having to come up with more and more complex workarounds and then the bugs get worse and bigger. And there's nothing you can do until you go back and say, okay, let's start from the very beginning. So the different kind of operating system would be one that starts, just as Atosa has been talking about, with life. One that actually looks at creating a society that is life-affirming rather than wealth-affirming. And from that very foundation, the next level is, well, what are the principles of life? We actually look to ecosystems. We look that ecosystems have been around for millions and millions of years, dealing with perturbations and like staying healthy, like responding to them and always changing, 
always shifting and growing, but always remaining resilient too. So what are those principles that life itself has evolved over billions of years that ecosystems have in themselves? And how can we apply those principles to a human society? That's the idea of really shifting from the operating system itself. And we start to answer the questions about organizing society and economy and relationships and everything else in totally different ways. Exactly. I totally agree with Jeremy. And he and I have had a lot of really amazing conversations over the years and his great books um, exploring this idea of paradigm. In order to change the system, we need to change the goals of the system, for one. And we also need to change even more so the worldview out of which those system is arising. And the worldview is also what I mentioned earlier, that indigenous people's worldview, the proof in that their indigenous worldview is life affirming is that most of life that still exists on this earth is on indigenous lands. So the idea of the operating system to me is making visible the hidden cultural assumptions and beliefs and societal values that are in the background. They're kind of the waters we swim in. And right now, the waters we swim in is basically the primacy of the financial system, the primacy of money. And we want an operating system that puts life first, as Jeremy said, so it's the primacy of the web of life. And that becoming the goal of the system, the goal of the system being about life flourishing and well-being in all of its sense. Well-being includes justice, includes distribution of wealth, and includes women's rights and minorities' rights and indigenous rights because it sees the earth as one living organism. And just in your body, if you have a weakness in a body, if you have a disease or, or something that's not working in your body, it affects the health of the whole system. So you want a society that tends to the interests and well-being of all of its members. And by taking into account all of the members, well-being of all of the community of life, you will cohere to life. You will allow life to be basically in coherence and, and flourishing. So the idea that we looked at in the Amazon, for example, is that there are these societal norms and economic and political systems that arise out of those norms. For example, this idea that a lot of what happened in the Amazon since the colonization had to do with, like, for example, the papal doctrine of discovery, basically giving the church permission to go forth and settle empty lands for imperial ambition, for God and for glory. This idea that, you know, the myth of El Dorado, the gold that was in the riches of the forest, was this hidden riches for anyone to go forth and conquer. A myth of El Dorado, which is take the forest and convert it to gold, is still, at, you know, still happening in many forms, whether it's oil or gold or other minerals or cattle ranching, you know, it, it came from religious and cultural views that also that saw indigenous peoples as, you know, savages and animals and less than liquid Christians. And it gave permission for slavery and human rights abuses. And those are still embedded in the racism we see in this region. These are historical frameworks. They are defining human, you know, they are the DNA of the economic system concepts like progress, which are this linear concept that goes from not developed to develop, the concept of development, which is this concept that says you're not developed and you're developed. And if you're developed, if you're measured by your wealth and your throughput of your economy, how much resources are flowing through the economy, and that's true wealth. Well, it isn't true wealth. We have to redefine true wealth in a more holistic way to be, again, life-affirming. So we need the worldview that sees 
The Amazon is a vital organ of the earth and that rainforests in general are the circulatory system of planet earth, the biological heart, the rain machine. Uh, we need to see that the hydrological system of the earth is the true, the what nourishes true wealth. Um, so we need to like debunk the, the myth. One myth that's kind of the operating system now is this myth that we are homo economicus. We are this rational, usually individual man, self-interested, and we're operating in a rational marketplace where we make decisions. Well, that is, you know, not true. That is the myth that needs to be debunked. And the myth that we need is the myth that is really about we are a strand in a mutually beneficial web where we benefit as we benefit others like cells in a living body of a living earth, that's more of the, the operating system that we need to convert to. Our question today has been a huge one. But for many people, the idea they might even be able to redesign their own street or their own neighbourhood is huge, almost impossible. People's sense that they can change the world is drowning often in their sense of being overwhelmed by the complexity and relentlessness of the world. How can we help people to cultivate a belief in their lives that redesigning the operating system of our entire civilization is possible, desirable, and has even the tiniest chance of actually being successful? Where do we start, Atosa? Well, in the Amazon, and the headwaters of the Amazon, we're starting in these river basins, these incredible river basins that are some of the most critical headwaters region of the Amazon River and River Basin. This area includes basically that the territories of 30 indigenous nations. And within that, we've had these amazing conversations and processes for the last four years of basically creating a bioregionalism, this idea of a bioregion that is based on the not political boundaries of Ecuador, Peru, or this county, or that district, or this state, but based on the watershed boundaries. We are also cultivating this idea of a mosaic of self-determined nations who are independent to determine their own future, self-determination, but that are in alliance as if they were an archipelago of islands that are working together to be part of the same body, this understanding that what happens upriver affects downriver. So we have um, been doing a lot of bioregional visioning and planning and really thinking about things like the rights and legislation and policy work, think the laws that need to change, the incentives that need to come in, but also processes, processes where you know ecological literacy where community health and empowerment, where women's rights and women's empowerment, where youth, the role of youth, the role of elders can basically be helping guide the transition process. And at the same time, we have to be a political force. We have to basically organize. This is an area of the Amazon where I spent for most of my career fighting one place battle at a time, you know, let's stop this pipeline or this mine or stop this road or this dam. And we won a lot of those fights. What we realized is that there were constantly more battles coming, you know, more things coming from the headwaters, right? We had to go to the source and see who's, you know, where is this mindset that's generating all of these industrial threats and to try to create what we call a stronghold, a stronghold of a human landscape, a stronghold of nature's landscape that are coming together to, you know, resist, 
but also to provide solutions and to help change the direction of history in this one area and then be a model for the rest of the world. So, but I think it all comes back to the fact that, you know, there is, in this case, indigenous nations who used to war against each other over land decided to unite and find common cause. And that unity, that alliance, then with global movements, with social movements, with human rights movements has really strengthened them. And it's been like the global movement has helped them see who they are. They are, they see themselves connected in the world, in the eyes of the world, that they are the guardians of knowledge, of wisdom, of life, of this, you know, this area of the Amazon is perhaps has more species of life than anywhere else on earth, right? So it has the highest levels of biodiversity. And these people are, through the work globally are mirrored to them that they are the guardians of life and that we can learn from them. So we need the political action. We need the political power building. We need to generate solutions. And, you know, and ultimately one thing that I've learned that's really amazing is exactly what you're doing here, which is imagining, you know, we cannot make the change that we can't see. You know, we have to be able to see the change we want to see in the world for it to come forward. And so what we're seeing is that this process of visioning the future, which is a participatory process guided and, and supported by many indigenous cultures on this landscape, is itself part of the transformation. It's the process of transformation. It starts with the vision, it starts with connecting, and it starts with the values that guide the decision. So I don't know, I would say, well, starting your watershed, there's rights of nature ordinances you can get adopted in your local municipality to recognize the rights of your rivers and forests. That is an organizing tool that brings the community together. And then, you know, through that is a process of empowerment of basically being connected to the transformation that we need to see in the world. So what next, you know, where do we go from there? Fabulous, fabulous. Jeremy, how do, how do we start? Yeah, well, you know, what I would say to people is start with your heart. Just feel the actual love for life that you have in your own heart, that to feel that, that pain when, as part of life, seeing the destruction going around, and to feel into what the energy is that's there, what it wants to do. Because when we look at the destruction taking place on the earth, and, and it's so easy to just get totally disconsolate and like, oh, it's getting worse and worse. The destructive forces have got billions, trillions of dollars at their disposal, all the military force, the technological force that's destroying the earth. It's easy to get, sort of get a sense of hopelessness. But what was on the other side that I believe is the far more powerful force, is that force of life that every one of us human beings has within us. Every new human that's born into this world starts off with actually these core human emotions of caring and compassion and feeling connected, like feeling those indigenous values. They're not just some indigenous values, like some sort of exotic set of values that you'll find if you sort of get on a plane and go somewhere out of the city. They're actually in the heart of each of us. That's what we are as evolved human beings. So starting with your heart allows you to actually follow what your deep consciousness tells you to do. For some people, that might be building community. 
with people right there on your street, right around you. For other people, it might be actually just offering a deeper resonance of love to other human beings and just getting people to see things in different ways. It might be a matter of getting involved with community action and maybe a matter of getting involved in planetary system-wide action too. Because one of the things that I believe is so true is that the personal transformation in the actual sense of self-being consciousness, the community transformation and the global political transformation, they're a little bit like sort of concentric circles that are totally connected up and uh, complexly mixed up with each other. So you can sort of begin and um, once you begin with your heart, you can let that lead you to those places. But I don't think it's ever sufficient to say, well, I'm on this layer and that's, that's enough. Because all of these transformations we need have to happen in all these places. Somebody just working on the global political transformation, if they're not doing that work of decolonizing and um, feeling that's true love of life within themselves, they're not going to actually have the effect that they think they, they want to be having on those other layers. So it's like in all actions, in all interactions with the world, in all the choices we make, the values we come up with, to start with our living, beating heart and our sense of deep connectedness with the life inside us that we share with all of life around us. Wow. Thank you both so, so very much. I think we are out of time, sadly. I feel we could talk for a very, very long time on this. And already, every now and then I record one of these podcasts where I, I need to go and lie on my own in a field on my back and look at the sky for an hour or so afterwards just to let it all land. And I feel like we've just had one of those conversations. So uh, thank you both so, so, so much for joining me here today, really. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to be in this conversation. So my thanks to you both. And my thanks also to everyone who subscribes to this podcast, that finest, most exceptional group of marvellous people just waiting for you, hopefully having been inspired by this discussion, to join their swelling ranks. And lastly, to the wonderful Ben Adicott, an artist who makes these podcasts sound like liquid honey. See you next time. <laughs>